0: When the, uh, when the team uh, that we work with to put together the Sunday morning services, when, the, when we all decided together that we were going to call this series Bible Study, there was something I think that really uh, filled my spirit about that because at some level I feel like my whole life, or at least the last 30 years of my life, have been fairly thoroughly defined by the idea of Bible Study. I I can't remember any further back than than grade 10 in this regard, but I remember as early as grade 10, a a group of my friends at the Christian high school that we attended asking me whether I would lead a Bible study with them every single week. Um, I feel like I must have um, done at least something prior to that that would have made somebody think that they'd like me to lead a a Bible study with a group of friends, but. But it was back in grade 10. I remember that was the first time I remember being asked whether I would lead a Bible study, which I began to do for that whole school year. And then um, that just kind of opened the door to all sorts of other opportunities. I started doing Bible studies in student ministries, you know, various student ministries, ours and others around the city. And then uh, I started to speak in our chapel at the Christian high school that we attended. Did that a, a bunch of times. And it got to the point where this whole idea of studying the Bible and helping people understand what the Bible says became so important to me, I was so compelled by it, that I began to think maybe after high school, I should just go straight to Bible college and get into ministry, like study theology and, and begin to study the Bible and explain to, it what, to people what it means. And, uh, you know, for my journey, I think wisdom prevailed in retrospect, and, and I went with the encouragement of others and did an engineering degree. But, but even halfway through that engineering degree, I contemplated dropping out of school. And Chris Fowler and I, who uh, is the location leader at our Glenridge location, we were, the two of us, we were gonna move to Halifax and plant a church. And I was gonna do all the preaching. And uh, again, wisdom prevailed and, and I stayed in school. But by the time my engineering degree was arriving at completion, I knew it had just, my, so much of my life had been absorbed by, this, by, by the idea of Bible study. I mean, because I preached in our church all the way through my university education. Uh, that, that This is what God had called me to do. And after university, I went to seminary to study the Bible in order to learn how to communicate to other people. And 10 days before I started at seminary, I was hired by this church. And I've spent the last 18 years in this community studying the Bible, doing Bible study to try and help me and others understand God's vision for our lives. And it's been this amazing thing. It's, the, it's what gets me out of bed every single day, is this notion of Bible study. And at the core of it, at the core of my whole journey, uh, my whole devotion to studying the Bible, is really this compelling sense of what the Bible actually is. And it's rooted in 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 14 where it says this, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, be loyal, be faithful and consistent in your faith because you know, first of all, those from whom you've learned it because you trust your teachers and secondly, you know how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paul says, listen, he says, the thing you need to know about Scripture is this, that all Scripture is God-breathed. It's actually a literal translation of a Greek word, theopneustos. It's God-breathed. It is breathed out by God. Theologians will use the word inspiration of Scripture. Scripture is inspired by God. In other words, God is responsible for the contents of Scripture. But I think the better language than inspiration would be Expiration. Because what Paul means is that scripture itself finds its origin in the deepest part of who God is. And God breathes out the scriptures and breathes it into people's lives. In a sense, scripture is kind of like divine CPR, right? Scripture is how God breathes his life into spiritually dead people and makes them become spiritually alive. That's what Paul says, that God breathes out the scriptures so that we would be wise for salvation. In other words, that we would learn to understand God's vision for our lives and be able to begin to live it out in the way that we live every single day. And he says there's two ways that God does this. Through teaching and rebuking, which is the, the positive side and the negative side of forming people's beliefs. Scripture both teaches you what to believe and fixes those incorrect beliefs that we hold. That's the one thing it does. The other thing is it's, the words are correcting and training in righteousness. It corrects our bad behavior and it trains us in good behavior, in Christian behavior, righteous behavior. What what Scripture does through teaching and rebuking is breathe the thoughts of God into our mind. What it does through correcting and training in righteousness is breathe the life of God into our life so that our lives begin to resemble his life and we become, Paul says, Thoroughly equipped for every good work. We become the people that we were created to be able to do the things that God has called us to do, which is to partner together with him to bring his loving, healing hope into the world. That's what scripture is. It is the way that God breathes his thoughts and his life into us so that we become wise for salvation through teaching and rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that in our thoughts and in our lives we become who we were created to be, to do what God has called us to do, which is to bring his healing love and hope into the world. That's... According to the Bible, that is what Scripture is. That's what the Bible is. As a part of an evangelical denomination, we have long held to certain convictions about what that means for what kind of book this is. If this is God's book, and it is, if this is God's book and it has its origins in him and it leads people to him in their life with him, then um, we have reasoned that this book must bear all the marks of what God is like. If this book originates, I mean, you can tell, in a sense, what kind of person an author is by reading their book. So this book shouldn't bear the marks of what God is like. And so we've believed that since God does not say anything that is false or untrue, that the words of this book are true. The, the language that theologians use is inerrancy, that there are no errors or mistakes anywhere in the scriptures because this is God's book and what God says is true. We've used the language in theology of sufficiency. Sufficiency. That since this is, this is God's attempt to communicate with humanity, then, then God is going to communicate everything he wants to communicate. He's not going to leave anything out. And so everything you need is here. We've talked about Scripture's consistency. That God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, and so Scripture's utterly consistent from beginning to end in what it teaches. God doesn't change his mind about certain issues, right? God is consistent on all matters in the beginning, middle, and end, that all scripture is consistent and unified with each other. Um, We've talked about the, the universality of scripture, that every scripture is equally applicable to all Christians in all places at all times throughout all of history because God's relevance to a person's life never changes. That's what... We've reasoned that's what the scriptures are. They are inerrant, they are sufficient, they are consistent, and they are universal. And because of the kind of book this is, denominations like ours have said that, mean, that affects the way we read this book. Um, only theologians use the language of perscapuity. Perscapuity. I think that's the right way to say it. Uh, basically, it means that any reasonable person can sit down on their own with the scriptures in their own language and understand the plain meaning of what it is that God's trying to say. You don't need a degree. You don't need church tradition. You don't need church. You don't need the community. You you can sit down with the scriptures and read it in your own language and understand the plain sense of what it is that God's trying to say. If, secondly, you approach the scriptures with what some people have called a, a common sense interpretive filter. In other words, You come to the Bible reading for the plain sense of what Scripture literally means, except when your common sense tells you this can't be literal, and so you interpret it symbolically. But that has been what it's meant in churches like ours, in denominations like ours, for a couple hundred years to do Bible study. But here's the thing. In the last couple of years, I've been on a journey where God has taken me through a season of not simply Bible study in terms of studying the Bible and what it says. God has taken me through a season of Bible study in terms of studying what the Bible is. And in some ways, in the last three years of my journey, I've begun to wonder whether we've thought about the Bible in the most accurate kind of way. I've seen, begun to see in the pages of Scripture ways in which the Bible doesn't behave the way we've always said that it should behave. So we've said God doesn't tell a lie, therefore the Scriptures should be inerrant. They should have no errors or mistakes, except um, there are mistakes in the bible i know it's a radical thing to say but it's it's true there are there are scientific mistakes in the bible i mean never mind the big controversy of evolution and creation we're all we're going to talk about all of that next week um they're just very simple scientific mistakes there's two stories in the old testament just one simple example there are dozens there are two stories in the old testament where two different women you know with infertility struggling with infertility um try to resolve their infertility by eating the mandrake fruit. A fruit called a mandrake, which was in the ancient world, widely believed to be both an aphrodisiac, it was going to incite the passion of your partner towards you, uh, and it was a cure for infertility. And so you, get, you, you can tell in the Hebrew language the connection, because the, the Hebrew word for mandrake is dudaim, and the Hebrew word, one Hebrew word for love, is dotim, they're the same word. They're, they're, basically, the mandrake is the love fruit. It's a cure for infertility, ex, except that it isn't. Right? If you go to the Hamilton Fertility Clinic, they're not going to give you a plate of mandrakes and say, eat these. You know, that just, in the ancient world, they believed that it was a cure for infertility, but that's, that's just false. It's not even though that perspective is contained in the page of scripture. Even Jesus himself, in Mark chapter 4, Jesus says, the mustard seed is the smallest seed on earth. That statement just isn't true. In the ancient world, they thought it was true. They thought the mustard seed was the smallest seed on earth. But botanically speaking, that's not true. We know now of lots of seeds that are smaller than the mustard seed, including the orchid seed and others. What Jesus said, just scientifically, factually, is just not, not true. Um... And whether that constitutes a mistake or an error, they, they were doing the best with the knowledge they had, but, but it's now, in terms of t- what we understand the 21st century, it's just scientifically not true. And I've begun to wonder, that's not what we've meant by inerrancy. We've meant that everything is true. And what do you do with that? Are there are historical inconsistencies or mistakes in Scripture. I mean, the story of the life of Jesus is full, told four times, and some of the same incidences are reported in multiple versions of the gospel. And, and some of those stories, they're reported so differently that the two stories are actually functionally irreconcilable. You can't, they can't have happened the way both of these stories are describing it. What, if, if Matthew is right, Mark has to be wrong. And if Mark is right, Matthew has to be wrong. And there's really, there's no way, without getting into the realm of fanciful speculation, there's really no way to reconcile the two stories. One of them is factually inaccurate. What do you do with that? In the Old Testament, there's a story in 1 Chronicles 21 where it says that Satan incited King David to take a census, that King David took a census of the nation of Israel and God was displeased with that, and so he punished Israel. And, and that, was a t- that was spiritual warfare. That was a spiritual attack that convinced David to take a census of Israel. And I kind of feel the same way when that long form shows up in my house, that Satan is at work here, <laughs> In 2 Samuel 24, the same story is told, but it said that God told David to take the census. It takes a lot of theological gymnastics. If God and Satan are not the same person, then those stories don't fit together very neatly. Um, we've said that Scripture, that God doesn't change, and so scripture is consistent on everything that it teaches from beginning and end, except that it, it isn't. If you read the, the oldest books of the Old Testament, those authors don't have any sort of formed belief about the afterlife. The, the consistent belief in the oldest parts of the Old Testament is that you die and you go to the grave and that's it. And then you get this development of this idea of Sheol where people's ghosts go, but there's, it doesn't matter whether you're good or bad or whatever, all the ghosts go to the same place and you're not really existing, you're only kind of existing, um, it's not the afterlife the way we think of the afterlife. And then you get this phase where there's this sort of money. well, maybe there's a little bit more than that. And then in the last chapter of one of the very last books written in the Old Testament is the first mention of the resurrection of the faithful. That's the first time that doctrine is... Mentioned, And then what happens in history is that the Jews, between the end of the Old Testament and the first century, they developed this whole theology of the resurrection so that by the time Jesus comes along, virtually everybody believes in resurrection. But that was not the belief that started at the beginning of the Old Testament. There was a progression or a development of theology. At times, there's even disagreement. You know, the book of Proverbs, the whole thesis of the book of Proverbs is that if you live a wise and righteous life, God will bless you. But two books earlier you have the book of Job who was the most righteous man on the earth and because he was righteous God allowed Satan to destroy his life in order to win a bet. The righteousness of Job didn't get him blessing it ruined his life. The book after Proverbs is the book of Ecclesiastes where the writer of Ecclesiastes says wisdom is BS. It doesn't get you anything. It's a waste of time. And these two opinions about whether wisdom and righteousness gain the blessing of God, uh, they sit in tension with each other. It, they don't all, not all scripture comes out in the same place. Ethically, ethically, the teachings of scripture are not consistent. And listen, I'm, what I'm wa- doing is I'm walking through this series. Next week, we're going to talk about science, and then we're going to talk about history, and then we're going to talk about theology, and then we're going to talk about ethics. So four weeks from now, we're going to talk about the fact that ethically, the scripture is not consistent. At the beginning of the Old Testament, the Jews are given certain laws about how to buy slaves, own slaves, treat slaves, work slaves, uh, gain slaves, sell slaves, free slaves. They're given all this legislation about how to own slaves because it's an entirely slave-driven economy. Fast forward all the way to the end of the New Testament and Paul, with a wink, is saying to his friend, maybe it's time you know you let your slaves go. The Scholars call it the redemptive ark. Of scripture, where the teaching of how we ought to live actually changes over time. There's this beautiful psalm that we read uh, quite often, especially in our twenty-four-seven exercises, um, Psalm one thirty-nine, where. Uh, you know, most of the psalm is this beautiful poem about this psalmist's relationship with God. You've searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I get up, and you're always there. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? You're always everywhere that I go. You created me, you know, in my mother's womb. You knit me together in my inmost being, um, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. I just love the way you think about me and so on. And it ends with this prayer that says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's this beautiful prayer of this person who's hungering to live rightly in relationship with God. Verses 21 or 19 to 22 say this. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. God, your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them, and I count them my enemies. We don't read those verses quite so often. (laughs) That's his prayer. Do I have nothing but hatred for your enemies? Search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there's any offensive way within me. It was a badge of righteousness for the psalmist to hate his enemies. Then Jesus comes along and he says, you've heard it say, that hate your enemies. Yeah, I did hear it said in the Bible. And he says, no, love your enemies. That's how it is now. It's just not always consistent. Anyway, it's, it's in this journey over the last few years, it's got me to wonder whether we've been thinking about the Bible and what it is and how to read it, how to understand it in the very best possible way. And what I began to wonder is whether it isn't worth it for us to begin to think about Scripture differently. Not to abandon the idea that it's God's book. It is absolutely God's book. To make you wise for salvation through teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the, person, the servant of God can be thoroughly equipped for every good work because it is breathed out by God. This is God's book. And I'm not saying that we compromise that belief at all. I'm just wondering whether with this right from the early centuries of the church... The church fathers said there is a comparison to be made between Scripture and Jesus. Scripture and Jesus. See, Jesus was 100% God, but he was also 100% human. He was 100% God. So that Matthew could say that when Jesus was born, he will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus living on earth was God living and moving among his people. He was God. And yet the writer of the Hebrews says... He was made like his brothers and sisters in every way, fully human. Indistinguishable from any other human being who ever lived. He was fully, 100% human. While Jesus was on earth, he was never anything less than God, but he never lived as anything more than a human being. 100% God and human. Not 50% God, 50% human, not God 50% of the time, human 50% of the time. Not doing some things as God, some things as a human. Not being God, but appearing to be human. Jesus was 100% God and 100% human. Now we struggle with that. Those who uh, haven't bought into the faith generally struggle with the idea that Jesus was God. They think of him as a great moral teacher or guru or example of love or whatever, but he just, he wasn't God. That's but I think in the church, we struggle thinking about Jesus as a human being. We don't like the humanity of Jesus. It feels degrading to think of Jesus as a human being. That's why we don't talk about Jesus having diarrhea. Right? Jesus eats a bad piece of fish and he's got the trots for a couple of days. Like, we, don't, we don't like talking about that. We feel like it disrespects Jesus to talk about his humanity like that. We don't like talking about the fact that Jesus had to learn things. The Bible says he grew in wisdom and stature, that in the same way that his body grew as he got older and bigger, that his wisdom grew. His understanding of the vision of God got deeper and his understanding of what that looked like to live that out got fuller. Jesus, as he got older, like all of us, as we get older, we have a more complex, nuanced, fuller, deeper understanding of life and God and faith than when we were a little kid. That was true of Jesus. We We like to think that Jesus came out of Mary having memorized the entire Old Testament and able to do calculus. Jesus had to learn things. He grew and developed over time. We're gonna talk about that. We don't talk about the fact that Jesus battled with lust. Jesus... It says in Hebrews that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, except he was without sin. The only thing that separated Jesus' humanity from ours was sin. So if you've ever been tempted with something, if you've ever been tempted by lust, then Jesus was tempted in the same way. Jesus was a man who was attracted to women and had to battle the temptation to lust. That's what the Bible teaches. We don't like to think about that. He never sinned. He never fell into lust. We don't like to think about the humanity of Jesus like that. I'm about to blow some people's minds. We don't like to think about the possibility that Jesus made non-sinful mistakes. Smoke coming out of anybody's ear? Think about this for a second. Think about this. Do you think Jesus, working in his father's carpenter shop, ever cut a piece of wood to the wrong length because he had misread the measuring tape? And had to throw away the piece of wood and get another one and cut it to the right length. Do you, ever, do you ever think Jesus ever added together 27 and 38 and got 75, which I assume is the wrong answer, but I can't do math in my head. Like, do you ever think that Jesus, those aren't sins. They're just mistakes. They're innocent mistakes. They don't cost anything. They're not immoral. They're not, they're just human. It's how we learn things by trial and error. To err is human. The only thing that distinguished Jesus from anybody else was, Sin, that's not sin. So is it possible that Jesus made non-sinful mistakes in ways that didn't hamper God's ability to use him to save the world? We don't like to talk about the humanity of Jesus, but Jesus was both 100% God and 100% human, and I believe in the ways that I've been talking about and many more. And the question that I'm getting to and the question that is driving this whole series is, is it possible that we should think about scripture the same way we think about Jesus. That scripture is God's book. It is a divine book. It is breathed out from the very deepest places of God to serve his purposes in the world, absolutely 100%. But it is also 100% a human book. It's not only a human book, as though God had nothing to do with it and these are just people's opinions about spirituality. No, no, this is God's book, but it's also a human book. Well, like it says about Jesus that in the beginning was the word, Jesus, God's articulation of who he is. And, and the way God communicated who he is by, was by the word becoming a flesh and blood human being. A full-fledged, card-carrying human being. That maybe the word of God in this form is God's revelation and articulation being communicated through full-fledged, card-carrying human beings who contribute their humanness to the writings of scripture. Such that like Jesus, uh, who was a person of his time and only understood science the way a first century Jewish person could understand science and said the mustard seed is the smallest seed, um, that like Jesus, the writers of scriptures were people of their times who could only be counted on to have the scientific understanding that was consistent with the culture in which they lived. Or that they were human beings who, like Jesus, who was a participant in first century Jewish Roman-occupied Palestine. That's where Jesus lived, and that's the culture he participated in, not any other culture. That's the culture Jesus participated in. And these guys participated in their own culture, guys and potentially gals, participated in their own culture, even if that culture was more violent than what we're used to or what God would even want. Is it possible? Is it possible that like Jesus had to develop over time and grow in his wisdom and understanding that the writers of scriptures were allowed from the beginning of scripture to the end to grow in their understanding of what the vision of God for humanity and creation would look like so that by the end of scripture, the understanding of God's vision is different than what it was at the beginning. There's been growth and development and change. Is it possible that like Jesus, I believe, was probably committed non-sinful mistakes as a full-fledged human being, is it possible that the writers of scriptures in accomplishing God's purposes in recording his words uh, were allowed to say things that were perhaps mistaken at times? Um, Because they were just human beings that God was using to communicate his vision of a life lived in relationship with him and each other of love in this creation. If that's possible, how would that change the way we read scripture? How would that change the way we understand who God is? How would that change the way we talk about scripture, especially with each other, but also especially with people who don't share our faith? How would that affect the way we discover the person of Jesus in these pages? That's what this series is all about. And I hope that you are willing and excited to come along for the journey over the next five weeks with us. I want to invite the band back to the stage and in a minute I'm going to pray. And after I pray, I want to leave some space while the band plays for you to pray. Because I can imagine that there are people in some very different places in your head and in your emotions this morning. That, that there are probably some people who are surprised and even shocked, maybe even disappointed to hear some of the things that I've been reflecting on and some of the suggestions that I've been making. And if, if you're in that space this morning, I wonder whether it would be appropriate for you to use that, that empty space of prayer with God just to pray for grace. That God would give you the grace to live in community with us and be a part of the dialogue and to create the space for people to think and believe differently than you as we dialogue together and all grow towards wherever it is that God is leading us as we more fully resemble his son, Jesus Christ. On the other end of the spectrum, I can imagine that there are people who are relieved, even excited that this... This morning has been like a breath of fresh air for you because you have long felt some of these tensions in scripture and not known what to do with it and not known that it's okay to question faith and not known that it's okay to, to revisit what you believe about the Bible and you've heard the possibility, the hope this morning that maybe some of these tensions that you've been feeling can be uh, even, you can move towards resolution and I'm I wonder whether for you, your prayer in that time with you and God would be that God would reveal himself to you in this journey in a brand new and fresh way. I wonder whether there are those who are right now closed to some of the ideas that I've put out there this morning. You're just not open to entertaining any new thoughts about Scripture. And I wonder whether your prayer might be that God would... uh, allow you to stay humble and soft and open to uh, to considering what God might want to teach you in the next five weeks. Not necessarily that you would agree with everything that I've said or everything I will say over the next five weeks, but that God would, you'd remain open to what God wants to teach you in this journey. And I wonder whether there's a community of people who's just excited and intrigued and is eager to hear where these conversations are going to go. And I wonder whether your prayer might be that God would give you discernment over the next weeks to allow what is garbage to fall away, but that you might cherish and cling to what is real and true and what God wants for you in the way that we think about what this book is, what it looks like to read it, and what it means to discover God and his son Jesus Christ through it. Let's pray together. I'll pray and then... We'll just leave some open space for you to carry wherever you are before God, to name it, to own it, and to ask God to lead you through it. Let's pray together. Father, um, these are sort of seminal moments where we re ask some of the fundamental and foundational questions about faith. And it can be very unsettling, it can be very scary to step into a space of asking questions about stuff that we thought was settled a long time ago. And God, I pray that you would be present in the midst of the journey of this Bible study series as we begin to unpack what the Bible is and how you've used it to communicate to us. And I pray that you would create a spirit of unity among us. Not unanimity, not uniformity, but unity as we together journey in community with each other towards the future that you have for us as individuals and as a community. We pray through Jesus Christ, your son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit as one God forever and ever. Amen. Spend a minute with the Lord in prayer.